You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. And uh, the rest of you, if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn it into the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's in your order of worship. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, we've got a couple on the back table I'd love to put in your hands as our gift to you. Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. About midway through, you'll find Psalms, then turn to the right, you'll get Proverbs, and then you'll have Ecclesiastes. Okay? If you're visiting here with us this morning, I want to warn you that um, you've you've come into a bit of a dangerous place. Uh, And I, I say that because I've heard from many people here... Many of you, old and young, uh, different stages of life, different things going on, that um, as we've been talking through Ecclesiastes over the last few weeks, several weeks, that God has been incredibly disrupting you. (laughs) God is doing something here, and He's doing something with us basically in revealing where it is that we've placed our hopes, because all of us place our hopes somewhere. We all place them somewhere. The question is not if we're going to place them somewhere. The question is where. And then once we answer that, the question is whether or not that place can actually carry the weight of our hopes. And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's all about looking to where we're placing our hopes and then seeing, is that place uh, going to be able to carry the weight? And this week we turn to what feels like, I think, if if you read through the book, it feels like a bit of a summary. Like the teacher has taken us through uh, what he's talked about, uh, looked to significance and wisdom and pleasure and responsibility and work, and he's led us through all of these things. And he's found that they're all very good things, but none of them can be ultimate things. And so now we turn to find what it is that is the best that we can hope for. So if you have your place, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, please. Uh, We'll be reading verses 24 through 26. Short reading this morning. This is God's word. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But this also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but the sinner is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. God's word, friends, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, in this place we have have the hopeful, we have the discouraged, we have the broken, we have the strong. uh, But we are all needy. We are all in need of the grace of the gospel. We're in need of the power of the Holy Spirit. We need you, O God, to, to preach to us, to open our hearts, to speak, and to apply these things to our hearts. Because without you, we are done. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do these things for the sake of your name and for our good. Lord, preach to us. Uh, Let Christ and his cross come forward. 
And let the speaker fall to the, to, to the rear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. It actually seems like a million years ago now, and as I say it, it's almost funny, but I grew up during a time in which the, um, the TV show that most disturbed parents and educators alike was a cartoon called The Simpsons. Where I went to school, I remember, I remember specifically in middle school, when I, where I went to school, if you showed up in a Bart Simpson t-shirt, you had to go to the bathroom and turn it inside out, right? And this was, this was, a, this was a public school. Um, and so, uh, you know, apparently back, back then, uh, schools weren't so... Uh, concerned about self-expression as maybe they are now. But looking back, that is so amazing to me because it wasn't that long ago, but so much has changed, right? Because what bothered folks then was the fact that Bart Simpson would stand up and say, eat my shorts. Like, eat my shorts. Like, that was the, you can hear worse than that on SpongeBob today, right? And that's marketed to, like, little kids. Eat my shorts was the, was the big problem on, uh, in The Simpsons. One of my favorite lines from The Simpsons involves Homer, and um, who's the dad, in case some of you have Never seen The Simpsons, uh, but it involves Homer and his boss and resident town quadzillionaire, Mr. Burns, right? Mr. Burns owns everything, including the nuclear power plant that Homer works at. Uh, and, and basically, it, it runs like this. Homer, Homer says to Mr. Burns, he says, Mr. Burns, who, who is kind of, Mr. Burns is kind of the prototypical, like, evil rich man, right? He says to Mr. Burns, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. Mr. Burns says... Yes, and I would give it all for more, right? I would give it all for more. It's funny, of course, but it's also telling, right? Because what Homer is declaring to Mr. Burns is that you've got it all. You've got everything I want. You have the life. And Mr. Burns says, yeah, I don't think so. Right? Homer had a vision for what it would look like to be set, to be satisfied, to flourish. But Mr. Burns, who actually had all those things, in the comical way said, it's, it's, not, it's not there. That's not what I've got. And so what this is about, this little quote, this little phrase, is the good life. Which, strangely enough, is kind of what our passage is about this morning. The good life, however we define that. Because all of us define it differently. We have different levels of definition of what that would mean to live the good life. But can that definition support the weight of our hopes? Is it even something we can accomplish? These are the the questions that we're going to take to the scripture this morning as we hopefully will take all of our questions. Uh, There's an outline in your bulletin, right? We're going to look at three three points this morning as as our teacher goes through this. We're going to look at his frustrated resignation. We're going to look at his maddening reversal. And then finally, we're going to look at what the real good life is. Okay? All right, let's start with the frustrated resignation. Look down at verse 24. Now, I said a few minutes ago, this feels like a summation, it does. When you read this, you get, the, you get the feeling that he's coming to the end of a section. Like, I've explored some things, now I'm going to sum those things up. I'm going to, I'm going to look at them and kind of bring, a, bring some type of closure to it, uh, to kind of come up with a big idea. And what that looks like at first is seeing that there's nothing better. He says this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, let's stop there. Nothing better. That basically means that what he's about to say is, this is the best you can hope for. From all the stuff that I've looked at, of, uh, all the things that I have looked into, uh, I've looked at what it means to, to, to put your hopes in significance and in wisdom and in pleasure and responsibility and in work. And all these things make promises. They make promises to us. 
They make promises that they will actually deliver on our hopes. But over and over and over again, the teacher has come to the conclusion that they do not. And he has answered that by saying that they are meaningless, or, or in the ESV it says vanity. And now, remember, if you've been with us, what we've said that means, it doesn't mean pointless, it doesn't mean useless, it just means it's it, it, insubstantial. They're insubstantial. They look like they can support, but they cannot. They can't deliver on their promises. They are good things. Work, pleasure, significance, uh, responsibility, good things. But they can't be ultimate things. They can't be ultimate things. At the end of the day, they can never come through for us. So here he says, look, the best that you can hope for is to eat, to drink, and to find enjoyment in your toil. This goes without saying, can I tell you, this is not the guy I'm going to invite to a party. Like, this, he is a downer. Like, but what he's talking about, when he's talking about eating and drinking and such, is he's basically talking about your best possible life. This is the best possible thing you can hope for. Now, when I say that we're introducing a concept we need to be clear about, because all of us know what this life is. When I say the best life you can hope for, you've got an image in your head. It's different, right? For some of us, it's like the the big house and the fancy cars. For others of us, it's just a quiet life on a lot of land. You know, for some of us, it's it's just having all of our kids gathered around us as we sit on our little chair, and they're all gathered around us. Speak, Father. What what dost thou want us to learn today? You know, whatever it is, like we have an idea of what this what this concept is. But all of these things, eating, drinking, enjoying your work, they they all draw together in the concept of satisfaction. Will we be satisfied? And and so the best that we can hope for, according to our teacher, is satisfaction. That's the best you got. That conclusion of all of these things, he's like, okay, I, I can't get it in significance, in responsibility, in wisdom, in pleasure. I guess the best I can hope for is just to be satisfied, to not be hungry. What do you think about that? He's been looking at all these things, and he keeps finding himself frustrated. And so it comes at last to this idea of like, okay, I'll just labor to be satisfied. I'll just do my best to get that. I can't be truly significant. I can't be wise enough. I can't get enough pleasure, but maybe I can be satisfied. Maybe I can just have the good life. But then at the end of verse 24 and and into 25 comes a realization that clearly causes problems for him. He says this, This also I saw was from the hand of God. Now stop there. We're going to get to the rest of that in a second. But this is really important because if you've been here, if you've you've, um, been here for any amount of this series, you know that what we've said is that the writer of Ecclesiastes is writing in, in this book from a deeply secular perspective. He has not mentioned the word God up until this point. God's not in view. He's not in view. He's not played a role. The entire point of this book is how can we search for meaning apart from him? And yet time after time after time, there seems to be this deep-seated anger that comes out from this teacher that he's not in control. That, that, that was the whole problem with wisdom, right? That wisdom was like, i got to try and find a way to wrap my mind around the things of the world. I can't. I can't seem to figure it out. I can't get enough. I can't get in control of what's going on in the world. And now that frustration comes into bloom when he addresses the one who is. What he means is this. The ability to eat, to drink, to enjoy your work comes from God. 
But satisfaction comes from Him. And this is why He says, for apart from Him, who can eat or have enjoyment? Now, let's be clear. This is not a happy statement from our teacher. This is not a a statement of, of joy and of comfort. This is a statement of frustration. This is something to be raged at. So what he is saying is the best we can work for, the best we can hope for is to be satisfied, but we can't even accomplish that. We can't make that happen. We are dependent on another even for that. And some of you right now know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because like, for, for some of us, like, we, we don't really believe in God. Or if we do, like, like I heard earlier this week, um, we believe that he's there for when we need him, but for most of the time we're doing just fine. You know what I mean? Like, that's the way we, we live our lives. And so for us, then, the idea of needing him to actually be satisfied, to flourish. Like, let's be honest. When this, the teacher comes to this section, he's giving us the lowest common denominator. All these other hopes, their grand hopes, can't meet them. Let's go to the lowest common denominator. And what he's saying right now is, you can't even get the lowest common denominator without him. And that is maddening to some of us. Now, for others of us, we really, we, we do believe in God might even call ourselves Christians because we, we work really hard, right, to, to, to do some semblance of what we think he is asking us to do. Um, to, we work really hard for him. We work really hard to get that satisfaction doing what he wants. And then it doesn't come, right? It doesn't come. We, we work really hard with whatever it is, whether it's I work really hard in my work or it's I'm so busy, I can't barely breathe because I'm doing so much church stuff to make God happy so that he'll give me satisfaction. Then he doesn't give me satisfaction. And then we get, we, we get, we, we get enraged. We find ourselves thinking like, what does he want from me? Why does he keep denying me? What we are raging at, friends, is, is dependence. We're raging at dependence. Why do I have to depend on him? And humanity has been raging that for nearly as long as we've been around. Because you see, we weren't created for independence. As the Bible tells the story, like, at the very beginning, the very first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God, right? Which is is something we normally just gloss over. That's a very telling statement. In the beginning, God means that before anything else was, there was God. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, completely independent of anything else. Didn't need anything. Just there. Boggles the mind. What, how do you exist when there's nothing? But I don't get it. But there, there he is. And, but he creates. And we were created originally to be in dependent relationship on the only independent uh, entity in the, in the universe, which is God. Everything else hangs together because of him. We're created to be dependent on him, on the God who loved and provided for us. We were made in his image. Unique from all creation. But that wasn't good enough. We didn't want to just be in his image. We wanted to be his equal. We wanted to be his equal. We were tricked into believing that he didn't care for us, he couldn't be trusted, and that we could actually be independent from him. And so we betrayed him, right? As the story progresses, we, we betrayed God. We turned away from him. It's something the Bible calls sin. It, 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 it means, um, and sin has a lot of cultural baggage today. It, what sin means is it's a relational betrayal. Of God. It's turning from Him to something else. It's not breaking necessarily just rules, it's actually breaking the heart of a person. It's breaking a relationship. 
And we sought our own way. And from that act, humanity became guilty for the betrayal, something that you and I recapitulate every day, right? I mean, let's be honest. No, no one in this room is going to, if I say, okay, who, who had a perfect day yesterday and never did anything wrong? Like, none of us are going to raise our hand on that one. Um, if you did, I'd, I'd encourage you to look a little closer. But not only do we recapitulate that betrayal every day, but something else happened too. Humanity got jacked up. We got jacked up. What I mean by that is that now, by nature, we live out of that lie, the lie that we can be independent and that we must be, that, that we both can be his equal and that we need to be because he can't be trusted. We live out of that lie. That is our assumption. It is not something that we have to be convinced of. We don't have to be convinced that we can be independent. We all just kind of we come out of the womb believing that. That's what, that's what we think we should be. It's imprinted on our DNA that we can be equal with God. The problem is, of course, that we can't, right? I mean, a fish may think he can breathe air. It doesn't change the fact he's got gills, not lungs, right? You may really believe that your car runs on sugar and not on gasoline, and so you pour sugar in it, it ain't going to run without gasoline. And you may even believe that you can fix the problem of your car by getting better sugar, right? Like, I'll get it in the raw, and that'll make it run. The problem is not the kind of sugar you're putting in. The problem is that you're putting sugar in Right? It's not made to run on that. The car's problem is actually being made worse. And that is what the teacher is raging against here. He wants to be independent. He wants to be able to say, I don't need you to flourish. But he finds that even satisfaction is out of our control. What we are to eat, to drink, and even enjoyment in our toil is not in our hands. It is given to us. And he rages at it. Because, and, and he is no different than us because we are a people stuck in our independence. Yet a people who can only flourish by being dependent on God. Now that brings us to a maddening reversal. So look down at verse 26. This is a hard verse and easily misunderstood. Let's put that on the table, okay? Because first he says this, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. All right, stop there. We need to see a couple things. First, this idea of pleasing. When we hear the word pleasing, to, or the words pleasing to God, our natural bent is to think that this person is very moral. Right? That's our, that's our initial response. That This is a, a, a goody-goody. Like, this is, God is thinking that what, we're, what, what we think that what's being talked about is we need to do good things, and that pleases God. And we believe this. Because we believe that God cares only about our behaviors. That our behaviors are what will or will not please Him. We do right and it pleases Him, right? That, that's what we think. It's all of us think that. But interestingly enough, there's a place in the Scriptures, in one of the Psalms, uh, a very f- famous Psalm, Psalm 51, that speaks to this when it says this. The psalmist, and this is David, uh, the King David, he says this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. In other words... Look, uh, we don't have any context for that. Uh, sacrifices and burnt offerings are basically like your religious behaviors in the Old Testament. And what the psalmist is saying, what David is saying is, you're not pleased with religious behavior, or I would do that. But he moves on. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, what does please God is contrition and humility contrition and humility. So then it isn't good behavior, but it's actually turning back to a person in humility, in independence that is actually pleasing to God. That is what pleases him. All right? Got that? 
Good. Second thing, notice what this person gets. The person who pleases God doesn't get food, drink, and enjoyment in his toil. Wait a minute. I thought that's what, that's what this whole thing is about, right? Food, drink, and enjoyment in his toil, satisfaction. It does, it's not that. It's wisdom, knowledge, and joy. In other words, this isn't an equation of I want stuff, I please God, I get stuff. Right? If I want stuff, it's I please God. And that's what happens. It's not that at all. That, that has nothing to do with this. That's paganism. Okay? If, if, you, if you're in this room this morning and you're... You, you're a self-identified Christian, you're like, wait a minute, but that's, what's the point then? What's the point of all this obeying and all this doing if, if I'm not going to get the stuff I want? Listen, that's not Christianity, that's paganism. That, that's called, that, that is no different than what, uh, you know, is glamorized in our culture this time of year. Like, magic. I'm going to do these things to bind the God to do what I want. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. That has nothing to do with, with what, what the Bible says. The God of the Bible, friends, is not, he's not your genie. He's not there to fulfill you. And so instead of food, drink, and, satisf- and uh, enjoyment and work, what comes is wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Another way of putting that is contentment. I, the one who pleases God, he gives contentment. You tracking with me? Good. The last thing he says is that God gives it. Did you see that? God gives it. In other words, he's still the one in charge. He's still the one in charge. God is still the one in charge. This isn't a way to get God to do what we want and make him serve us. God is the one who provides. Now, here's the problem. If you've been listening, you're probably wondering how there's any hope for anyone right now, right? Because I said just a few seconds ago that all of us are are by nature independent, living out of a lie, but the only way for us to be satisfied and to flourish, the only way for us to please God is for dependence. We can't get there. How how are we going to get there? Okay? If you're asking that, it's it's good. You're paying attention. Uh, Because, quite frankly, that's where this book is intending on taking us. The book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, what he is trying to do is he's trying to get us to come to the end of ourselves. Trying to get us to come to the end of our searching because he's like, look, I've done it all. I've done this. You, you and I, we don't believe that. You can, you can say, someone can tell you money can't buy happiness, and like half the people in this room are like, yeah, I know, but come on. But a little bit more would be nice. You know, like I'd be, I'd be a little bit happier with a little bit more. And so this is what, this is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to do. He's trying to, look, I've, I've had it all. I've done it all. And it's not working. But the good news is, is that God was not okay with us being stuck in our independence. If he was okay with it, we're all done. And I don't just mean like, so there's no hope for the future in some far off, like half of us in this room, we don't think about things like after we die because it's, we're, many of us are still young and that's still way in the future for us, at least in our minds. So we don't think about that. So I'm not just talking about the hereafter, I'm talking about the here and now. We're out of hope for the here and now because we'll always be left wanting. The problem is, or, or the good news is, is that God promised to make things right. And so, in Jesus, that's what he did. Uh, th- that's, why, th- that's why Christians, some of us get really upset. We're like, why do Christians got to talk about Jesus all the time? Like, 
why does everything have to be about Jesus? Because, well, because everything is, right? Uh, in Jesus, God made things right. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That's a weird mathematical equation. I can't figure it out, but, it's, but it is what it is. The scriptures are clear on that. But he lived a life that we were made for, fully dependent on God, loving God and neighbor perfectly. Any takers on that? Like, I didn't do that in the last 10 minutes, and I've been up here talking the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, don't, we don't do that. He, but he perfectly did it. And then he died on the cross to bear our guilt. God made him who knew no sin, the apostle says, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He lived the life we couldn't, and he died the death we dare not die. This is why, uh, like, this is why all the cultural talk about many paths leading to God is incompatible with Christianity. And I know that may be striking to some of us, but it, it, it literally is incompatible with Christianity. Because if Christianity is right about the problem, if the problem is a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with God and us stuck in our independence, then the only way to be restored would be to trust in Him, to, to be dependent on Him. And so when we place our faith in Christ, we are literally returning to depend on the God that has made us to depend on Him. A path can't get you there. Look, if you're like, well, but I can be good enough. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't understand. The problem is not that you're not good enough. The problem is that your relationship with Him is broken and you're trying to do things on your own. You have to move back to dependence. And Christ is the only way for that. Jesus is the only, the only, uh, the only person who ever claimed, uh, credibly, to be both God and human. Okay? <laughs> to claim it credibly because of what he did, how he loved, and, and his resurrection from the dead. And when we trust in him, when we place our life in the hands of, of Christ, when we return to dependence on him because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we become those who are pleasing to God because Christ was pleasing to God. His life becomes our life. His death, our death. Because he was pleasing, we become pleasing. And that leaves us only with the toil that we want. Look down at the rest of verse 26. The ESV says this, To the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also meaningless. Now, let me say a couple of things. First, that word sinner, I love saying it like that, sinner, when we say sinner, most of us think um, immoral, right? That, but it doesn't mean what you think. Uh, this isn't the typical word for, for the one who sins. This is the word that means offensive. Someone who is offensive. Uh, we hear sinner, we think moral behavior. What is offensive, though, is not just behavior. It's independence. Okay, what, what, let, me, let me get clear on that. When I say sinner, some of us in the room go, yeah, that's not me. I'm a pretty good dude. But what this word means is someone who is off- offensive to God. Look, it's a relational term, and it is set opposed to pleases at the beginning of the verse. What is offensive to God is a posture. It's a position. It's wanting to do it on our own apart from Him, right? Now, I know that most of us think, most of us think that, um, that because we do, uh, you know, good things that God should be happy with us. Because we do good things, God should take what we're willing to give and, and kind of be okay with that. But the Bible says that what offends him is our continued insistence on life apart from him and without thankfulness to him. That is what offends him. Now, secondly, the crazier thing, this gathering and collecting thing, 
That is meant to refer back to the toil that he talked about in the last section, right? So last week, we were talking about the meaninglessness of work. It was all about, I'm just working and working and can't get what I want. Can't get what I want out of it and never go into some other Yahoo is basically what what he says, right? What he means is this here in this section. The one who is independent of God, he sets, God sets to toiling independently of God. And then he gives what they are hoping to achieve through their toil, because they're independent. It's not like he's taking from them. and giving, He's giving what they're hoping to achieve to those who please him, to those who are dependent on him. Now let me clarify, because the Bible is very clear on this. God gives us what we want. He gives us what we want. Here's what I mean. In the beginning, when we wanted to be independent from him in the garden, we wanted life apart from him, that's, that's what he gave us. He said, okay, this is what you want. There's the door. Now there's a big flaming sword right at the door. <laughs> Bye. There it is. When we want to work our tails off trying to get satisfaction, trying to flourish without him, his judgment on that is not crushing us. His judgment on that is giving us over to that. To the continual, perpetual, futile labor of trying to get something that we cannot get out of that. That's what, that's what the first chapter of the book of Romans is all about, right? And there are all these debates and or all these arguments about what that says when it says that God's... Um, God's eternal judgment is being made manifest. His righteousness is revealed against, uh, against all wickedness and unrighteousness. And then it goes off in this list of things. And he keeps saying this word like, he gave them over. He gave them over. And we keep thinking that what he means is, what that book says is that their wicked behavior, that's why God's judging them. And we don't see that he giving them over to those things is the judgment for them. Like it, It's... He gives us what we want. We want to go, okay, I'm giving you over to those things. Now, don't get me wrong. Eternal judgment for our betrayal of God is real and it is terrible. But in the scriptures, in the scriptures, we, if we are apart from him, we would rather have that than him. That's the story that it tells us. I, it's, it's, it's not a situation, it's, it's a heart problem. The heart problem is like, I would rather have anything but God. Anything but dependence on him. Eternal judgment for our betrayal is real. It is terrible. But in the here and now, he says, he says this, you think pursuing the life, the good life instead of me will satisfy you? Then go for it. Go for it. In other words, our independent toil, our independence is both what offends God and what he gives us over to in light of it. What he gives us over to for offending him. While what we strive for, contentment, satisfaction, flourishing, is given simply to those who rest in him. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking? Good. Now let me bring this home this morning for us in two ways. The first is pleasing and offending. There is so much cultural baggage. When I say the words pleasing and offending God that come forward, we have got to clear the landscape before we can understand these. When I say pleasing God, like I said before, most of us think being good, right? Now listen, what I am not saying, I I am not saying that morality is not important, okay? Uh, That God doesn't care about ethics. He certainly does. But God cares about ethics. Um, uh, 
That's a philosophical word. God cares about his rules, not because he likes rules, but because his rules are a reflection of who he is. God is not a code, and he is not a force. He is a person. He is a person. So here it is. I've got four kids. Let's just take two of them, and I won't name them. Let's just take two of them, right? And let's say, let's say one of them wants to keep my rules, but does so distant from me. The other one wants to just go off on their own way, distant from me, right? Which one is pleasing to me? Neither. Neither. Because neither one want relationship with me. I want relationship. One wants rules and the other wants their own way. But both of them want their own thing apart from me. You tracking? You following me? What pleases me is relationship with my children. The same is true with God. What pleases Him is relationship. Now, will relationship with my children involve some kind of honoring of the kind of, you know, person that I am, the kind of values I have, the things that I think are important? Yes, absolutely. And so the same is true with us and God. Will it naturally involve a lived-out ethic of, of a life this way? This Yes, absolutely. But it starts with the relationship. If you are hoping to make yourself pleasing to God by behaving, whether, whether that is morally or, or behaving by having the right beliefs about things, which is probably more true in this room, right? The way I behave is I get good theology. I get my systematics books and I get them all lined up and I get my right beliefs, my little bullet points. Now, now I don't really live according to these things, but man, I can win an argument with you. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what we do. If you think that is going to do it, but you aren't in a reconciled relationship with him through Jesus, can I tell you, you are not pleasing to him. You are offending him. You are offending him. Now, some of us right now are a little ticked off, right? It's pretty narrow, Rick. Awfully narrow of you. I know, I know. But listen, if the Bible is right that our problem isn't behavioral, but of the heart, that it's not a problem of performance, but of position, then we need to return to his path of dependence. And that he has revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Christianity is the only system that tells you that you are worse than you think and more loved than you dreamed. That it's, wor- it's, it's so bad, a path won't help you. Like, a, a morality is not going to help you. It's worse than that. But you're more loved than you thought. It's the only belief system that gives not a path to follow, but a person to trust. Christianity gives you not a code, but a Christ. Like, it, it's a completely different way of doing things. Following a code will still leave you unreconciled to God, because you are both still liable for your betrayal of God, which means just, like, you and I would still be guilty. And still independent from him. I know that some of us are struggling right now because you're like, you don't understand, Rick. You don't, you don't realize how messed up I am. I've got to clean myself up before I'm able to do this. No, no, no. You, you don't get it. You can't. You can't. I can't. Praise God I can't because I'm not. Right? That's, it won't work. What pleases him is the contrite heart that says, I can't do it. Rescue me. That's what pleases him. Now, lastly, I want to talk about actually living out the good life. Here's the bottom line of what this passage is getting at. The one who has everything except God has nothing. 
because it's never enough. But the one who has God can be content with nothing because he has everything his heart longed for. He has everything that his heart longs for. That sounds extreme, so hear me out. If, if what keeps us from satisfaction is not the lack of abundance, but the lack of restoration with God, then no amount of abundance can satisfy us. You following me? If what keeps us from satisfaction is not that we don't have enough stuff, but we don't have enough God, then no amount of stuff can actually take care of that. The meaninglessness of the good life is found in this. You cannot achieve it. You can't do it. Satisfaction, contentment, all of that is found in resting in God and accepting what He gives as gifts. You can work your entire life way harder than the other dude, like the dude next to you. You can work way harder than him and not accomplish why he does. Why? Because God's the one that gives it. And we're like, that is, that is wrong. I, like, I know, like everything in us rages against that. Does that mean don't work hard? No, no, that's not what it means. But it means you are free. Like, you, can, you are free to have ambition. Because you know that what you are aiming for, what you are striving for, won't satisfy you anyway. You're free to do it. And free to not get it. You can keep an open hand with it. This is true whether you are aiming for a successful business, an academic career, a healthy family, a good marriage, whatever. Once we have realized that our satisfaction is not wrapped up in those things, we can be free to accept them as gifts or to not have them. Even though that will mean grief. It's not like that doesn't mean we grieve. It will mean grief. But we are free to do that because we know our flourishing is not wrapped up in that. Right? I give it all for more. (laughs) That is both absurd and completely honest. Mr. Burns' statement is truly ours, frankly, when we seek life apart from Christ. Not because we can't get what we're shooting for. Most of us in this room do not have a lack of abundance of food or drink, and many of us do enjoy our work. It's not that we can't get what we're shooting for, but it's because we were made for satisfaction in the God who made us, the God that we betrayed, the God who became flesh in Jesus to live, die, and rise again, to reconcile us to himself so that in him we might have the satisfaction that we long for. Would you pray with me? Lord, in light of all of your mercy to us, would you continue to push us? Some of us in this room are just not convinced. We are not convinced that we can't get what we're trying to get. We can't get the satisfaction that we long for through our our labors, through our stuff, through our abundance. We're not convinced. So Lord, I pray that in your mercy you would convince us. That is a mercy. We need to wake up. We need to wake up and see that our satisfaction... It's not found in relationships or in promotions or in degrees or in a bankroll. It is found in the God who made us for himself. So, Lord, until our hearts find rest in you, would you keep them restless so that we might have what we most deeply need instead of what is often what we most truly want. By your grace, Lord, transform us so that we might go into this city and be those that declare that 
declare that there is a God who is willing to transform uh, the most broken. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.